Morning, boys. Sure, I'm glad that we got some hot technology here for you. We're going to wow you with our Amen Bible Study technology. I always said you never should trust technology. It just gets you in a mess with the computers and projectors and all that kind of stuff. we got a good computer. We just have a lousy projector. We can't figure it out. It's just stubborn, like some of us. Hey, take your uh, notes. We'll walk through it without our overhead, and I'll just uh, be a little bit more careful to make sure every point makes sense this morning, which won't be half bad. Uh, that'll be a change. Uh, so we'll work our way through the Bible study. We're in First Peter chapter 2, if you want to turn there. And uh, we've got a very important text before us this morning. It's a classic text. And it teaches us uh, a couple of things that we really need to grab hold of that I think are sort of countercultural and somewhat counterintuitive. Uh, one is that uh, you are... If you are in Christ, you are something far more special than you usually even imagine. And this text is going to touch on some things and just sort of open vistas for us to think about what God's opinion of us is and how he sees us. That I just pray that all of us by faith will be able to accept it this morning and really believe it. Because I think it's a life transforming. And it has been for me just to get a little taste of it. And I know that I can't comprehend how great God's love is for us. But when the windows of heaven are opened up for us a little bit to see so that we can get a little bit of a taste of it, it's a great morning. So I trust that your view of yourself will be transformed this morning. And the second thing this text does for us (coughs) is to uh, show us again how special the church of Jesus Christ is. And a lot of us here belong to churches, a lot of different churches. And uh, if you've been in those churches for a while, especially if you've been in leadership, you know how messed up they are, every one of them, because they're made up of messed up people. And because of that, sometimes we begin to get somewhat cynical about the church. But once again, this text is going to open our eyes to some things about the church, as God has instituted it, and we need to be sure that we're seeing the church the same way he sees it. So first of all, it has to do with who we ourselves are, which ought to transform the way we live every day, and secondly... Uh, how we view his church, and then, of course, we'll ask some strategic questions about our relationship to it. Well, let's look at First Peter 2, beginning with verse 4. And uh, here, you know, we've just studied how Peter is challenging each one of us as individuals to grow, to take the word in like a baby takes in milk very eagerly. And it'll have the same effect, because as we take the word in, we're going to grow. And I trust that as you take the word in, you find yourself growing. He's turning from that sort of individual exhortation to now a more corporate view of who we are and what this all means. So let's look now more of the mystery of our salvation in Christ, and that is that we're actually introduced into this mystical community called the church. Verse 4. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone, 
and a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Amen. Well, we naturally uh, don't think of ourselves as uh, being all that great, although we try to pretend uh, often. Reminds me of a guy who went to the psychiatrist, and the psychiatrist said, "What's your problem?" He said, "I think I've got, uh, I think I, I've got an inferiority complex." And the psychiatrist said, "Well, let me give you some tests." And he gave him some tests. The guy came back next week, and the psychiatrist said, "Well, I've got your results. You do not have an inferiority complex. You are just inferior." Uh, and the uh, the client said, "Well, I think I'd like a second opinion." And he said, "Okay, you're ugly too." Uh, those are the kinds of messages that you often get in this world. Uh, you get beat up out there. Some of you are really getting beat up, and it has an effect upon you. You begin to question yourself, wonder who you are, what the purpose of life is, and whether you mean anything to God. And what we're going to see in this text is that God has made of you something very special indeed through Christ. You are really something by virtue of creation. We know that. Uh, you know, the Bible teaches us that, that we're made in his image. But when we sinned in Adam and Eve, we fell, and of course we came under his wrath. So we were made beautiful, but then we surrendered it in our sin. But then through redemption in Christ, everything is restored and even more, as we shall see. So this morning, I just pray that uh, you won't listen to the psychiatrist in that story. Listen to your real psychiatrist, they're a lot better. But not, uh, don't listen to the messages in this world that are tearing you down. But let's look at what the Bible says about you and, to put it more accurately, about you in the plural. That is about us. Not just me, but us. What is he saying about us as a community? And Roman number one, here's what it is. Through Christ, we become a magnificent community. That's Roman numeral number one. Through Christ, we become a magnificent community. We really need to meditate on this, and we're going to this morning. Now, notice in verse 2-4, first of all, this is A, it all begins with Jesus. It all begins with Jesus. Notice what he says in verse 4, as you come to him, the living stone. It all starts with him. It all has to do with him. I can't make these statements about you except in Jesus Christ, because apart from being redeemed in him, you are under his curse. And if you're here and you haven't put your faith in Jesus Christ, I'm not trying to tick you off and I'm not trying to make enemies. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. Is that my phone? Maybe. I'm not trying to tick you off. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. And the Bible says that we by nature are under the wrath of God. So I can't say that about everybody. What, I, what I'm talking about are those who put their trust in Christ. It all begins with Jesus. And he is the living stone. Now notice... The text right before that, that we studied last week, it says, like newborn babes, crave pure spiritual milk so that you may grow up in your salvation. Now look at this. Now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. That the Lord is good. Who is the Lord? Well, Psalm 34 
Taste and see that the Lord is good. And what's Psalm 34 talking about? Jehovah. God. But then look here, it says, as you come to Him. Who's Him? The Lord. Jehovah. And furthermore, more specifically, Jesus Christ. You know, you have a few texts in the Scriptures that show you clearly that Jesus Christ is God of God, light of light, as the Nicene Creed says, very God of very God. But some of the most amazing texts are the ones that are subtle, like this one, and you probably didn't even notice it. That Jesus Christ is just easily being referred to as the Lord, Jehovah, in the Old Testament. And we're going to see that texts in the Old Testament that apply to Jehovah are clearly being applied to Jesus Christ. I'm telling you, this Jesus is no one less than the living God. Now, He is fully human being, and He's exalted human being, but He is the Lord. So it all begins with the Lord incarnate. And notice that He's called the living stone. And why is He called the living stone? Well, isn't it interesting that Peter, who's writing this, what does the name Petros mean? It means rock. And Jesus Christ gave him that name. I, you know, his name was Simon. And Jesus says, now you're going to be Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. And of course, Peter turns out to be something other than a big rock, you know, when tough times come. But his name was Rocky. You know, mine's Sandy. So, you know, I'm, I'm the sand, you know, but, but he's Rocky. And, uh, and now Peter is saying, no, 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 no. He's the stone. He is the living stone. Jesus Christ is the rock. And why is that? Well, we'll see in just a little bit as we look at how, how Peter uses this elsewhere. But he's a living stone because he was raised from the dead. He's a living stone because he's a human being. He's alive. But in this case, he's living because he was raised from the dead. So it all begins with a resurrected Jesus. And when you come to him, something dramatic is happening to you. And we'll, we'll see that. Now, first of all, notice, number one, under A, he is rejected by men. He is rejected by men. That word rejected here is in, uh, in Greek, it's in the perfect tense. Past tense, uh, uh, the aorist, it's called, would be something that happened in the past, and it happened and it's over. Perfect tense, something happened in the past and has continuing effect in the present. So it's something that had happened and is still affecting us. So in the perfect tense here, he is rejected by men. He was rejected by them. He continues to be rejected by them with continuing effect. And, of course, we know that he was. And we'll dig more into this when we see how Peter quotes this text elsewhere in his ministry. Notice, secondly, number two, he is chosen and precious to God. Chosen and precious or honored to God. So even though Jesus Christ is the fulcrum, he's the center of everything, humanity is being divided based on its response to this stone. Even though men reject him, we see that God, to him, he, Jesus is the appointed, chosen, and precious one. So it all begins with Jesus Christ. Anything that we're studying this morning is all in Christ. This is the miracle of what he's done for us. Now look at B. This would be verse 2-5. And here's what, what B is. God builds us into Jesus. God builds us into Jesus. If you look at 2-5, he says, As you come to Him, the living stone, you also, like living stones, 
are being built. So we are living stones as well. Why? Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because as he was raised up, you remember we studied in chapter 1. We have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So as he is raised up, we too are raised. Our spirits are alive and in tune to God. Why? Because of the resurrection, Jesus was raised from the dead. Therefore, our spirits are raised from the dead. And one day, our very bodies will be raised from the dead. So we're alive for eternity. We're living stones. It's an amazing thing. David Livingston, the great missionary, had a wonderful name, Living Stone. That's what we all are, Living Stones. And we, too, were despised. We, too, were forsaken. We are in this world. If you identify with Jesus Christ, you bring on the same scorn uh, that uh, he had in his life. And only here in, in the New Testament are we described as living stones. We're described as other things that have to do with, with uh, the church, as we'll see in a few moments. But only here we're described as living stones. Now, what are we being built into? Now, let's look at these two things under B. What are we being built into? And I want you to notice uh, two metaphors here. The first one, number one, is a spiritual house. Spiritual house. That's nothing other than the temple. We are being built into the temple. So, uh, if you build a building, you've got all your bricks out there, and you've got your mortar, and you put them up one by one in courses, and you build that edifice up. And here's what Peter is saying about us. As God is building his grand edifice, his own palace, his own dwelling place, he's using living stones, not dead stones, not bricks, not, not brick and mortar. He's using people to build his temple. And this is, makes of us absolutely something uh, remarkable. Now leave your finger there and go over to Ephesians chapter 2 and look with me for a moment at, at how the Apostle Paul puts this. Peter and Paul are on the same track, talking about the same principle, just applying it a little bit differently. And let's look at a couple of implications of our being this spiritual house or this temple. First of all, in Ephesians 2, you remember in the first part of Ephesians 2, I'm sure you remember from five years ago when we studied this book, uh, first half of Ephesians 2 talks about how we individually are made alive with Christ. But then in the second half of Ephesians 2, beginning with verse 11, he talks about how we're made an alive community, that the dividing wall of hostility is torn down between Jew and Gentile which is the greatest wall ever between any peoples in the world. So if that wall is broken down, surely the wall between genders, the wall between age, age groups, socioeconomic groups, the wall between races, the wall between nationalities, it's all gone. The church obliterates it. Why? Because the blood of Jesus Christ has torn down that which once separated us. So the very death of Christ is meant to make us one. But look how he picks up the argument then at the very end of chapter 2 in Ephesians. In verse 19, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. He's talking to Gentiles now. You're, you're included in Israel. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Okay, so you see that this building has a foundation. And the foundation is the very word of God that came through the prophets in the Old Testament, the apostles in the New Testament. That's the foundation of the church. It, it is the pillar and foundation of the truth, as Paul puts it in 1 Timothy. So the church is the locus and the guarantor and the curator of truth through the apostles and the prophets. That's how we have truth. 
and the chief cornerstone that establishes the size and the, and the arrangement of the entire building is Jesus Christ. And then look what he says after that. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, too, you are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So we are then the dwelling place of God on the earth. That's just remarkable. You know, you think you, you can travel the world and you can see the Taj Mahal and you can see the Forbidden City in China. You can see the, the top copy palace in Istanbul. You can uh, go see the crown jewels in London. You, you can see all the places that have been built for kings and queens around the, the world through the centuries. And you think, now, what would we build for God? Well, what they built was, of course, the temple on the uh, Temple Mount in, in Jerusalem. But Peter is saying, no, this is even more remarkable. The place where God is going to dwell in this age, until he comes again, is among his people. That's the reason the church is such a, a mystical and fabulous uh, body. It's because it's the very dwelling place of God. Okay, turn with me just a few more pages back to the left, over to 1 Corinthians. And look in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and uh, that'd be on page 1846. And he says here, he once again makes this remarkable statement. This is 1 Corinthians 3.16. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? Now look at this verse 17. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is sacred, and you are that temple. And you there is in the plural. So he's speaking to us as the church. He's saying, look, anybody who seeks to destroy the church of Jesus Christ, and there are many nations where they're seeking to do it, and there are many people who would love to do it, even in our own culture, anyone who takes on the church of Jesus Christ will himself be destroyed because the temple is sacred. You are sacred. That means you've been set apart by God, and he sees you as being very different. You are chosen and precious. Woe be to anyone in the world who seeks to destroy you. Turn over just a couple of pages in 1 Corinthians, and you get more of an individual view of what it means to be the housing place of God. This is 1 Corinthians 6, page 1850. And here he said, he's speaking about why we should live a moral life. And he says in verse 18, this is 618, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Here's an argument that's being made out of this same principle, that we as individuals are temples. So as an individual, I house God's Spirit because he lives within me. And then certainly, and more predominantly, as the church of Jesus Christ, we are the housing place for God's presence in the world. And because of that reason, we need to be unified. We need to love each other. We need to be careful with our language because he dwells among us. We don't want to offend him in any way. We don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit. And certainly, even our sexual lives are very important. In the first century, many Christians were saying, oh, your body's not that important. Just do whatever you want to. Eat, drink, be merry, have sex. But just go worship you know, church every week. Because the body's not important. What's important is the spirit, the immortality of the soul. And Paul was saying it's not just the immortality of the soul, like the pagan ethicists tell you. No, 
It's your body as well. You're going to be resurrected. Your body is also, also has an everlasting uh, endurance. Therefore, be careful with your body. You house the Spirit of God. That's the primary reason then for all of our ethics is because we're the housing place of God. Now back to 1 Peter 2. So you see, God builds us into a spiritual house. This, we're sacred. You hadn't thought of yourself as sacred. But you are. You're set apart to be a living stone in the house of God. Secondly, underneath B, God builds uh, us into Jesus as a holy priesthood. Holy priesthood, number two. Now, this is quite a job description. Why don't you look at your footnote uh, in the Spirit of the Reformation Study Bible here on page 2018. And uh, down at the bottom left, you see where it says in bold print, holy priesthood in the text there? Look at this. Every true believer is a priest in the sense of several things. Number one, having equal and immediate access to God. Don't take that for granted. Everybody doesn't have access to God the way a priest does. A priest gets to go into his presence intimately, and you have that in Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, it was only one group of the Levites who could go into the holy place, and only the high priest could go into the holy of holies, and Jesus Christ himself has gone into the holy of holies and taken you with him. So you have access. Secondly, serving him personally. You are his valet. You are his aide-de-camp. You are his personal assistant. It's an amazing thing. You know him intimately, and your whole life is taken up with serving him. That's what it means to be a priest. Thirdly, you intercede for others. Priests in the Old Testament were called upon to pray. And something that's not mentioned here in this footnote, they were often called to give benedictions. You remember the Aaronic benediction in Leviticus chapter 6. I'm sorry, uh, Numbers chapter 6, which says, he, he says to the sons of Aaron, when you bless the people, bless them like this. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon you and give you peace. He said, you pronounce that benediction on them and they will be blessed. So the priests had the power to bless God's people with a benediction. Guess what? You do too. You have the power of blessing, of encouragement, of reminding everybody who they are. Hopefully I'm doing that for you today as a fellow priest to my fellow priests. To remind you who you are, to bless you, to benedict you. Everybody who is in Christ has that power. That's what's being said here about being a holy priesthood. He says we're being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. So he switches the metaphor. We were a temple, now we're the priesthood. But they're both applicable. Keep reading here at this footnote. And leading others to receive God's ultimate sacrifice, Jesus Christ. This is what a priest does. A priest goes into the presence of God on behalf of other people. Paul says in Romans chapter 15 that he is reaching the Gentiles as his priestly duty. What, how, how is a, reaching others a priestly duty? Because you're raising up others to offer themselves as living sacrifices as well. You're increasing the population of people who are going to be offered to the Lord who will sing His praises. So a priest prays and intercedes, blesses other people, and evangelizes. That's our priestly duty. And this is exactly what Peter is saying to these numbskulled Gentiles who became Christians. He's saying, do you realize what happened to you when you became a Christian? You were built into a spiritual house. You were built into a holy priesthood. Now notice what else he says there in verse 5. He says, 
built into a spirit, holy priesthood, first of all, offering spiritual sacrifices. And that's A under 2 there. Offering spiritual sacrifices. Now, we know in the Old Testament that the priests offered sacrifices. That was one of their big jobs. They would, you know, because we all sin, we have the Levites prepare sacrifices for us, and the priests, the sons of Aaron who were Levites, a subgroup of the Levites, they would actually take our offerings before the Lord. And they would be animals that would be slain. Blood would be everywhere. Priests were look, look, look like butchers. They were just covered with blood because they were taking sacrifices in. Why? Because God had allowed that instead of pouring His wrath out on us, He poured His wrath out on substitutionary animals. And for a season, namely 1,500 years, those animals took the wrath of the butcher, the, the priest. What happened when Jesus came? He became the sacrificial lamb. He took the wrath of God. His blood was spilt once and for all. And that's the reason that the temple was destroyed in God's providence. And there are no more animal bloody sacrifices. Because the blood has been offered once and for all now in Christ. But that blood is what has covered us. And so you say, well, so what sacrifices do we have to offer? The sacrifice has been made. It's over. We celebrate it in the Eucharist. But... Here, Peter is saying, no, we're offering spiritual sacrifices. What are those? Well, let me give you three texts in the New Testament that speak of sacrifices that we continue to offer even in the New Testament age. Number one, Romans uh, Romans 12, 1 and 2. I plead with you, brethren, in view of God's mercies, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is only our reasonable worship. So first of all, the first spiritual sacrifice that you as a priest bring out of response to what God has done for us and what He's made us to do, we offer ourselves as living sacrifices, not dead sacrifices like Jesus offered. Jesus offered Himself to be given over to death. You offer yourself, if God would be pleased to give you over to death, but your sacrifice is to give yourself over as a living sacrifice. Lord, here I am and I'll live for You. And if we die for Him, great. But we are offering ourselves continually to live for Him. That's a spiritual sacrifice. And you've been being made a priesthood to begin with yourself, to offer yourself, so that when you share the gospel with other people, you're encouraging them to do the same thing. Come give yourself, body and soul, to Jesus Christ in view of His mercies toward us. That's the first thing. Then Philippians chapter 4, verse 18. And here you may remember, Paul was in prison in Philippi in Rome. And the Philippians sent one of their dear brothers, Epaphroditus, to come and take a gift to Paul while he was in prison. That was a 600-mile journey by foot. That's how much Epaphroditus loved Paul. That's how much the Philippians loved Paul. He had led them to Christ and planted that church. He was now in prison. They were going to take care of him. 600 miles by foot. And they take gifts to him. And he responds to them. And you remember he says, well, look, I've learned to be content whatever my circumstances. So I want you to know that, that first of all, I'm grateful for your gift, but, you know, regardless, I'm going to be a content man because I can do all things through him who gives me strength. But, he says, and if you look at verse 18, I have received, this is Philippians 4:18. I have received full payment and even more. I'm amply supplied now that I have received your, uh, from Epaphroditus the gift you sent. Now look at the language. They are a fragrant offering an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. So he's saying, your tithes and offerings, 
that you give for your missionaries around the world are a fragrant offering, like incense being offered to the Lord, a sacrifice that is pleasing to God. So when you give your tithes and offerings, you are giving spiritual sacrifices. And we continue to do that as the holy priesthood. So when you don't tithe, you're denying your own priesthood and who you are. That's your role in life. And thirdly, in the New Testament, you'll find in Hebrews 13 a reference to a sacrifice. And this one probably is the dominant idea in this particular text. In Hebrews 13, this is on page 2003, you'll see that the writer of Hebrews says, there, uh, through Jesus, therefore, this is 13:15, through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name. So we give a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of our lips, so that when we rise to sing in church on Sunday, some of us are just tempted to look around and count the bricks, you know, how many light bulbs are out, you know, think about our golf grip. Uh, and we just, or, or sometimes, it's, you know, if you go to the early service and you're still kind of glazed over, you just kind of look straight ahead. You know, who knows what in the world you're thinking about. I'm looking out there looking at some of you Presbyterians, you know. You're just kind of off in deep space somewhere, space cadet. You know, not even looking at the words that we're offering to the Lord. And you've forgotten that you're a priest. You know, and you're a priest who's off the job. Get back on the job. Your job is to, to sing and to, to make Melody to the Lord. You say, I can't make melody. I'm tone deaf. Uh, well, okay. Sing a little lower volume, but sing. Uh, I was telling folks the other day that I was at a retreat one time. It was an officer's retreat, and we were in kind of a semicircle. It was kind of a camp setting, and we were singing some sort of campfire song. I don't know. And the, the deacon behind me started making animal noises. It was, ooh, because something like, I thought, you know, he was just trying to be an idiot. You know, so I turned around and went, <laughs> and then I realized he wasn't kidding. He was really trying to sing. And then we were both embarrassed. But then uh, I was really pleased after I blew it and laughed at him, and I shouldn't have. He was offering his best. And, uh, you know, that was beautiful music to the Lord. He says, make a joyful noise unto the Lord. And gentlemen... Uh, Americans tend not to sing. We like music, but we like others to play it for us. And in professional communities like this one in East Memphis, uh, we tend to hire people to do that for us. And it's a sad thing. We don't make music, we hire music. And what Peter is saying is, now let me tell you who you are. You're the musicians. And if you don't play very well and you don't sing very well, you better do it as well as you can because you're all we've got. We can bring in professional choirs in our church services. We can have professional solos who can sing, you know, these high notes and get everybody all riled up and we can stand up and give them big applause. No, but that, that's not being a priest. The priest is the one who does the singing. So get at it. And we should be developing to the best of our ability. I especially speak to you young men. You know, if you don't think you can sing very well, you can actually begin to make some changes. You might even begin to be able to sing on key. I don't know. Uh, some can, some can't. If you can't sing on key, here, here's how you know that you're being a distraction. People start looking at you like this. Or someone turns around and goes, ha, ha, ha. You know, then you know you're off base. So what I told our congregation the other day, uh, you're sitting, you know, one of the women said to me, 
You're driving me crazy. You told the guys an amen that they should sing, and now my husband is singing, and he can't sing a note, and it's driving me off. I can't even sing in worship anymore. So uh, here's, my, here's my advice. Your wife is standing here complaining about your singing. Just turn that way like that. That's all you got to do. You'll drive that person crazy, but you're not married to him, so it doesn't make any difference. Uh, so just, but do it, because you're, you're not performing for your wife or your children who laugh at you or anything else. You're performing for the Lord, and you're all the priest he's got, and that's all he wants is the best you can do. Because what he wants really, of course, is your heart. It's not the art, it's the heart. And that's what we have to realize. If we are a holy priesthood, we are to offer spiritual sacrifices, and that's all we've got. We've got our bodies we can give up, we've got our offerings that we can give up, and we've got our lips. There you go. So what else are you going to do? Create some other way that God didn't ask you to do, or are you going to do what God asked you to do? That's what he wants. You say, okay, you asked for it. Here it comes. I do that every Sunday. You asked for it. I don't sing great, but I sing loud. That's about all I've got. Let it belt out. And it seems to me when the church is really revived, they all understand that they're the priesthood, and the men especially sing out. You can feel it. The threshold starts to shake in a place like that. When the men rise up and sing what they mean, because they, they love their Savior and they're determined to serve Him. They're going to go out in a few minutes and beat snakes on his behalf. Right now, they're going to stand in front of him and remind him how great they think he is. Those are spiritual sacrifices. Get on with it if you're in Christ. That's the holy priesthood. Be under holy priesthood, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Hallelujah! Acceptable to God. All worship is not acceptable to God. If I go into my mantra and mm, sit in the lotus position, that's not acceptable to God. He hates that. If I'm beating myself with chains during Ramadan, He hates that. Am I being offensive? I'm sorry. That's what the Bible is teaching us. Worship that is acceptable is worship through Jesus Christ. Nothing else is acceptable. That's what the Bible teaches us. That's not a popular thing to say. It's a true thing to say. Nothing is acceptable but through Jesus Christ. All you have to do is look in the Old Testament. Even God tells His own people. When they're not worshiping Him the way He wants to be worshipped, we're told that He plugs up His ears, He holds His nose, He covers His eyes, and He says, lock the dang doors. Don't let those people into the temple to worship Me. I hate their worship. Why? Because it's insincere. They're ripping each other off out there in the marketplace, and then they come in here and tell me how wonderful I am. If they think I'm wonderful, then obey My law when you go out in the marketplace. Shut the doors. All worship is not automatically acceptable. But look at this. In Jesus Christ, is acceptable. Lord, I confess my sins. I have ripped people off. I've stabbed them in the back. I've done all kinds of evil things. Please forgive my sins. Give me the... The, the grace of repentance. Receive my worship because I offer it in the name and the mediation of Jesus Christ and His blood and righteousness. And He accepts it. Amazing. So as a priest, you have continual acceptance to God in your offering of spiritual sacrifices. Now, that's what God has built us to do. That's who we are as men of God. Now, let's turn to verses 6 through 10. And it gets really interesting. Roman numeral number two, the Old Testament foretold it. The apostles are always doing this. They're always doing this. They're basically saying, I'm not teaching you anything that the Old Testament doesn't support. In one sense, I'm not teaching you anything new. I'm just teaching you what the Old Testament always meant. This is very important to Paul and Peter. This is the third time Peter has introduced a scripture text 
He did it twice in chapter 1 in the same way, and here he's doing it again. And from verse 4, uh, I'm sorry, verse 6 through 10, it's just all Scripture references. He's saying this is what the Old Testament means. It's about the church. It was always the church in the Old Testament. It was always Christ in the Old Testament. Now, first of all, notice in A, and this comes from verse 6, only God's temple is indestructible. Only God's temple is indestructible. That's A. Why do I say that? Well, if you look at Isaiah 28:16, I'd like you to do that for just a moment, and that would be page 1120 in your Bible. Here, God is speaking to Ephraim which, of course, is one of the tribes of Israel, but it, it's, it's symbolic of the entire Judah, all of Judah. He's speaking to Ephraim and his people. And he says, he's speaking to them. And look in verse 14 on the previous page, 1119. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers who rule this people in Jerusalem. You see how he's scolding them? He's talking to his own people. You boast... And here's their boast. We have entered into a covenant with death. With the grave, we have made an agreement. When an overwhelming scourge sweeps by, it cannot touch us. For we have made a lie our refuge and falsehood our hiding place. Is that not arrogant? We've just made a deal with death. It's not going to scare us. Now look what God says in verse 16. This is what the sovereign Lord says. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who trusts will never be dismayed. I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plumb line. Hail will sweep away your refuge, the big lie, and water will overflow your hiding place. Your covenant with death will be annulled. Your agreement with the grave will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge sweeps by, you will be beaten down by it. As often as it comes, it will carry you away. Morning after morning, by day and by night, it will sweep through. So you think you made a deal with death. You have this nice little eschatology you've created in your own mind that all you have to do is live a pretty good life. And then when you die, you go straight to heaven like an angel floating around playing a harp. He says, to hell with that. I cancel and annul that whole idea you've got that just by living a fairly decent civil life and you're just going to float away like an angel. It's gone. Forget that big lie. Look, says the Sovereign Lord, I lay a foundation in Zion and the cornerstone is that which I am establishing. And he's basically saying to them, your only hope is to be within the temple of God, to be His people. And obey His Word. So you see, now, now back to First Peter. You see the context in Isaiah? Now look what Peter's doing to it. Actually, we have to go back and see what Jesus did to it. Uh, before you get back to First Peter, go to Matthew chapter 21. And Jesus quotes Psalm 118, which also speaks of the cornerstone. And look what's done with this whole cornerstone idea. He says, 
in this parable, there was a landowner. This is uh, Matthew 21:33. After he entered Jerusalem and cleansed the temple, there was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized his servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them, more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied, and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So Jesus is saying, Indeed, he's speaking about the Jewish people, his church. If they reject the Son, they are going to stumble over the stumbling stone, the cornerstone itself. So you see how it's used in Old Testament context and what, what Jesus does to it in a New Testament context. And we'll see in a moment how, what Peter does with it. So here he's speaking of Israelites. But notice that the Apostle Peter is talking not just about Israelites, but about Jews and Gentiles. That he lays a stone in Zion for all to accept him. Now notice, first of all, this is under A, or, uh, only God's temple is indestructible. Number one, he establishes his temple. He establishes his temple. Jesus said, on this rock, I will build my church. He says, I lay a stone in Zion. God is the one who decides who his church is and who's in it. Secondly, number two, he chooses the cornerstone. He appoints Jesus Christ as the cornerstone. God does this. He chooses the cornerstone. Thirdly, we must put our trust in him. It's just very simple. He establishes temple. He chooses the cornerstone. We must put our trust in him. That's what he's saying. There's only one way. All humanity is being divided up into two categories, those who believe and those who don't believe. And there's a cosmic clash, as we shall see through the rest of First Peter. Now, look at B. Verses 7 through 10 teach us this. Only those who believe in Jesus are indestructible. Okay, in the first instance, he told us only God's temple is indestructible from the Old Testament. Now he's going to show us only those who believe in Jesus are indestructible. And I want you to know, gentlemen, if you're in Jesus Christ, you're indestructible. That's what this text is teaching us. You are the holy people of God. You're his temple. You're his priesthood. And you're indestructible. Why do I say this? Well, he, look at number one. This is verse 7a. God divides humanity. This is B1. God divides humanity by their response to Jesus. God divides humanity by their response to Jesus. And why do we say that? Well, verse 7 says, Now to you who believe, the stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. Secondly, B2, God has reversed the judgment of men. You see how he says it here? God has reversed the judgment of men. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. Actually, capstone is probably not the best translation. Let me give you a, the literal translation. The, the translation for that word is the head of the corner. That is, the stone the builders rejected has become the head of the corner. It's not the capstone. It's the foundation stone. It's just actually the opposite. 
This stone is actually, you know, if you build a building in the old days, they carefully pick their stones, and the most important stone of all was the cornerstone. You have to set it just right. It has to be perfectly square, and it's going to set the courses of all the stones that are going to be laid after it. And that's who Jesus Christ is. And you'll notice once again underneath that I have Psalm 118.22. We don't have time to look at it. But in Psalm 118, David's the cornerstone. And the nations are trying to build. And basically they're saying you cannot ignore David, the king, and build. And then look what Peter and Jesus are doing with that text. They're saying Jesus is the cornerstone. He's the son of David. And no nations, and certainly not Israel, can build without the Messiah as much as they may have tried. So God reverses the judgment of men. And when you get to Acts chapter 4, we won't look at that right now, but Peter basically says, you have rejected him through crucifying him. But God has raised him from the dead. That's how God chose him as cornerstone. He raised him as a, from a dead stone to be a living stone. So God has completely reversed the rejection that men have made of Christ. And here's what he's saying. God is also completely reversing the rejection that you experience in this world. And it feels to you right now like you're completely rejected at times. That's the way it felt to Jesus. He was rejected. But he knew that God was going to raise him from the dead. He talked about it over and over again in the Gospels. We need to keep talking about it. Because God has completely reversed rejection into acceptance as something that's precious and chosen. Number three, verse 2 eight teaches us, God judges those who reject the cornerstone. Why do I say that? Well, verse 8 says, a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. The stumbling stone is the scandalon in Greek from which we get the word scandalous. It causes people to stumble. Jesus Christ is a scandalon. He's a scandal. People stumble on Him. And God is judging those who do not receive Him. First of all, A under 3 They don't believe because they don't obey. They don't believe because they don't obey. They stumble because they disobey the message. That is, they don't believe because they've hardened their hearts. They don't want to believe. They're in disobedience. And all of us either are or were in that state. Our unbelief came from a hardened heart. But then notice, secondly, B, they were destined for judgment. And both of these are being taught. And I know this is difficult. But we hold both of them to be true. And it's important that you hold both of them to be true. Why? Number one, we must realize that we're responsible for our own rebellion. You don't blame God for that. You rebelled. I rebelled. The world is in rebellion. And they're responsible for it. But number two, you notice, in the second part of this verse, don't worry about whether God's lost control or he's wringing his hands wondering if anybody's going to believe in him. No? No? The other side of this coin is that God is completely in control of history, including your salvation and the destruction of all those who don't believe in Him. I wish we had time to deal with that. But he's basically, Peter is saying, don't you worry, you Gentiles who are up there in, in northeast Turkey and being persecuted, just like the Jewish people used to be ter- persecuted, don't worry about it. God has destined your glory and their destruction. Fourthly, we've got about three minutes to go here. And lastly, those who believe in Jesus become the people of God. Those who believe in Jesus become the people of God. 
He says of them, they were destined for destruction. But verse 9, but you. You see the contrast? God has destined them for destruction and they deserve it. So do we. But for reasons that we do not understand, He has chosen us. Look at this language. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. So the first thing under number 4A is our identity is the new Israel. Our identity is the new Israel. And why do I say that? Well, because that's exactly the language that is used for Israel in the Old Testament, namely in Exodus 19. God gathers them at the mountain of uh, Mount Sinai, and what does He say to them? You will be for Me, this is Exodus 19.6, He says, although the whole earth is Mine, you will be for Me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. It's lifted right out of the Scriptures. He's saying, you are the new Israel. You're My people. You're the people that I brought together at Sinai, and now I've included Gentiles. That's who you are. I've chosen you. Not because you're a great people. Not because you're good looking. Not because you're smart. Not because you're wealthy. I've chosen you because you're the least of all the people. And my glory will be magnified if I glorify you. So we are a chosen people. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. A people belonging to God. All those things there under the identity. B, our mission is to praise God. Our mission is to praise God, that you may declare the praises of Him. And what is our mission to praise Him? First of all, in worship. Bullet point number one there, worship. And the second one is evangelism. We are called out of darkness into His marvelous light that we may declare His praises. Once again, it's our priesthood. We declare His praises in worship. We declare His praises as we go to work today. That's evangelism. Then lastly, see, our background is bleak. Our background is bleak, and he uses here language from Hosea. You once were not a people, now you're a people. Once again, in Hosea, that was applied to to Israel. Here it's being applied to us as Gentiles. Well, of course, we were not a people, and now we are a people. So when you think about how magnificent God is in making you what he's made you, just realize what you were and what you would be without him. You're not a people. None of these promises would apply to you. You're not a priesthood. You're not his temple. But you remember are chosen and precious living stones. And you are the priests for the whole earth. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for this text which brings alive to us Your intentions toward us, that they are benevolent and missional. And we pray that as we go our way today and every day, You'll help us to fulfill the very role to which You've called us, to be Your temple, to be Your priesthood. Help us, O God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you all.